Good afternoon, AP World History. This is Miss Funk coming to you live from her living room for our very first true day of non-traditional instruction slash NTI. This should be old hat for you guys, as if you've been following along correctly, this will be the third set of notes that you are going to be required to turn in. All of your notes, so 5.10, 6.1, and today's 6.2, will be due on Friday of this week. Okay, so today is April 6th. It is Monday. All of your notes will be due on April 10th by midnight. And all you have to do is submit them on Google Classroom. All right, introduction stuff out of the way. Let's get to it. So this is section 6.2, working on unit 6 for imperial expansion. The PowerPoint, as always, is on Google Classroom. And you can find a link to this episode through Spotify and through anchor.fm on the PowerPoint itself. For these notes, I'm going to have you separate them into three sections plus a TLDR summary at the end. Uh, Your sections are going to be state expansion in Africa, state expansion in Asia, and state expansion in the USA. We're going to start out really big, the biggest section, and then work our way down to the smallest one. My goal is to get into Asia and to the United States a little bit more in later lessons, but today's really big focus is going to be on Africa. Let's get to it. All right, so before we even get started, as a reminder, we're looking at imperialism, specifically imperialism in the 19th and 20th century. And one of the biggest parts of imperialism is expansion. So how do we make our empire, our imperial presence, bigger? Um, Imperial presence had been around in Africa for a really, really long time. You know why? Slaves. Um, The Europeans had been in contact with Africa for the slave trade all the way back to the 15-1600s. It's been around for a very long time. Uh, Western nations only just started to get rid of slavery in the 19th century. So that relationship had been there for ages. And that relationship was maintained using trade posts. These trade posts were established on the coasts of Africa, mostly on the coast closest to Europe because of the slave trade, where they would have these slave factories that we talked about back in the unit on Atlantic trade. Um, But not only did they have the resource of human capital, but Africa also had a massive amount of natural resources. And we know Europeans love resources. They are all about making money. So some of those resources included things like ivory, diamonds, and palm oil, which was important for oiling machines and factories to keep them running. Since the Europeans had just industrialized, they needed as many raw materials as humanly possible. And seeing as how the nations in Africa weren't really, quote unquote, nations by Western standards, it became really, really easy for the Europeans to get in there and start stealing stuff. If you're starting to see a theme here of forced labor of Africans or even just forced labor of people of color, uh, spoiler alert, that's not going to stop anytime soon. Sorry. One of the first major international incursions into Africa, Africa and African imperialism was the building of the Suez Canal in 1869. So since More or less the beginning of this course, Asia has been our major source of trade. The Chinese are incredibly powerful and still are at this time period. And so the Europeans, who are always desperate to make a quick buck, wanted to find a faster way to Asia and to the Indian Ocean specifically. Nobody's got time to go all the way around the Horn of Africa into the Sea of Darkness, blah, 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 blah. It's a mess. So the British, collaborating with a few other European nations, built the Suez Canal in Egypt. The problem with that was that they didn't actually build it up. Actually, it was built by a lot of unpaid labor um, of the actual Egyptians, many of which died under the conditions of work. 
Um, the canal itself was originally designed for international use and owned by the Ottoman Empire. However, the British started to feel sort of twitchy about other nations getting in on their business in the Indian Ocean. You'll see why in a minute. And by 1882, they took complete control of the Suez Canal. Now, for the Europeans, Africa was a literal and metaphorical gold mine. There were tons of resources and not a lot of ways to fight people who came to take said resources. All of the European nations started figuring this out pretty quickly and began running as fast as they could to get to Africa and stay there just to make money. So the European powers started to create different kinds of colonies in Africa, moving from this trade post system into actual colonial holdings. These holdings were taken either by force or quote unquote diplomacy. Um, I put diplomacy in quotes, scare quotes, because it's really hard to have diplomacy with the leader of another nation when the leader of the other nation doesn't understand your language or your customs or what things are worth because they've never spoken to anyone like you before. So diplomacy here is a nice way to say they took advantage of every African tribe leader they could meet. Now, surprisingly, the Europeans were pretty decent at diplomacy when it came to dealing with each other. So this crazy mess was called the scramble for Africa. And the Europeans started to figure out pretty quickly that if they ran into each other in Africa, there was probably going to be a war. Now, everybody in Europe had sort of a hand in the same greedy pie. So the leaders got together and decided, why don't we set the borders of what we get to take Together, we can all decide on it and make it fair so everybody gets what they need. Isn't that fantastic? Um, this was known as the Berlin Conference. It was happened in 1884, hosted by German Otto von Bismarck. Um, this diplomatic split of Africa set up borders in order to keep European nations from fighting each other, which seems like a good idea. If you move on to the next slide, you don't actually have to write anything, but I put this on here to give you an idea of what Africa looked like sort of before and after. Um, as you can see, there are a ton of colors on the map on the left from 1880, and each color represents the relative location of a tribe. In other words, where we have historical record of where people were living. If you look at the map on the right, you can see a lot of those colors have vanished and are now replaced with European influence pretty much everywhere. You can see how each group grew and took big chunks of Africa for themselves. Um, some names aren't even listed in the 1881 that are European that show up in the 1900s one, which is curious. We'll talk about that here in a minute. But what I really want to highlight to you is the fact that the Europeans have set up Africa for decades, decades, centuries even of political and political unrest and violence because these nations and tribes that hated each other were forced to live together. And if you had to live in the same place as your worst enemy, 40% of you would probably be getting into fistfights. I know that. It's okay. I love you anyway, but try not to fistfight your enemies. Here's the thing. When nations outside of other nations go places and draw borders all willy-nilly however they want, it usually ends pretty badly. And you might be wondering, well, if they drew the borders so badly, then why didn't anyone say anything about it? Not a single person from a single African tribe was invited to the Berlin Conference. So you got a bunch of white people split up around the table trying to decide how to split up the land of a whole bunch of Africans without any consultation from the Africans at all because guess what? They don't care. The Europeans don't see the Africans as humans, which we talked about a lot in our last lecture. 
In order to really understand the European impact on the African continent, we're going to look at two case studies. The first of those is going to be the Belgian Congo. So looking at the map on slide five, Belgium is not listed on our 1880 map, but by 1913, Belgium occupied a pretty large portion of Africa directly in the center, known as the Belgian Congo. This all happened because of the leader of Belgium, a guy by the name of King Leopold II, arguably one of the worst people of all time. That's a personal opinion, but I can back it up with facts. King Leopold didn't have a very high opinion of his Belgium. When asked what he thought about the place, Leopold said in his own words, small country, small people. He thought he was a lot better than Belgium, and that really led to his intentions at the Berlin Conference. At the Berlin Conference, King Leopold decided to claim his chunk of land, the Belgian Congo, for himself. Not for Belgium, for King Leopold. So it was private property owned by King Leopold II because he felt like he was better than that. There were a lot of geographic barriers for a long time into getting to the Congo, and most of the other Europeans saw it as sort of a lost cause. Many expeditions had attempted to go up the Congo River, one of the largest rivers in the world, and failed because of the rapids and the general condition of the area, as well as infectious diseases such as malaria. Um, so, of course, it was an easy giveaway to tiny little King Leopold in his tiny little country, which was just what King Leopold wanted. So... Leopold said he was going to go in to Africa as sort of a humanitarian mission, if you will. He wanted to protect the Congo, quote unquote, from evil Arab slave traders. He didn't actually call them that, but that's pretty much what it sounded like. The Europeans had this great sense of white savior complex that we talked about last lecture, and Leopold sort of manipulated that to take control of the Congo. Now, in the Congo, Leopold found something that was more valuable than gold, more valuable than diamonds, more valuable than oil or any other substance you could possibly think of, and that was rubber. One of the reasons rubber was more important than any other resource in this time period was because it was very, very hard to get. So a rubber tree takes about 20 years to reach its maturity. And yes, rubber comes from trees. Um, the Congo was one of very few places that Europeans had easy access to with rubber trees that were fully grown. Um, businesses were starting to plant rubber trees in South America, but in the Congo, they grew naturally. And so Leopold knew he had about a 20-year window where he would be the only person on the market supplying rubber. You can probably think of 20 things off the top of your head in your life that are made from rubber. One of the most important in this time period was tires for our brand new industrialized society. Everything uses rubber. Vulcanizing rubber was one of the most important processes of the Industrial Revolution. So Leopold realized he could get really rich really quick. And what's a way to get rich really, really quick? Well, it's certainly not paying your laborers. So what King Leopold decided is for each portion of the Congo, each village that he owned, every person was required to produce a certain amount of rubber harvested from rubber trees. Um, this was known as a quota. And so the Congolese had to make their quota. Now, this area wasn't always safe. They were out in the jungle. Um, they were sometimes dealing with enemy tribes or sometimes dealing with animals or all kinds of other things. And so King Leopold, in his kindness and greatness, gave each worker that he had a gun. And each person who got a gun got a certain amount of bullets. But he wanted to make sure they weren't wasting those bullets or, heaven forbid, stockpiling them to try to take over and defeat the Belgians. So he set up a pretty simple rule. That rule was if you shot a bullet, you had to produce a hand to go with it. 
Not like a handshake, not like a high five, a literal human hand. As in, you better have shot that bullet at one of your enemies or else. And they collected these hands. I don't know what they did with them. I wish I did. I actually really wish I didn't know. So never mind. But they really stuck with this policy. And the problem with this, aside from the fact that it's awful and people were losing their hands, is that it was also seriously abused. So instead of cutting the hands off of the dead bodies, which was supposed to be the, I guess, the way they were doing it before, um, people would just kind of take them willy-nilly because they wanted more bullets. So they would start taking the hands from anyone, uh, women, children, men, enemies, friends, anything. Um, as long as they could produce a hand that looked like it belonged to a Congolese person, that was acceptable. You know how I said King Leopold II, probably history's greatest monster a few minutes back. I'm still standing by that. If anything that I said in that last segment sounded remotely positive, rest assured, it was sarcasm. The Belgians' treatment of the Congolese people as a resource mine, not as human beings who were living life, uh, led to something around 8 million people's death. And to be honest, we don't even know if that number is true. The practices of the Belgians were so horrific that we don't really have a lot of record of what happened, and Belgium has certainly not been cooperative in giving it to us. Um, King Leopold II made this money for himself. So not only was he awful and cruel and greedy, but he was also awful and cruel and greedy for his own motivation, not for the betterment of his country, and certainly not for the betterment of the Congolese, like he liked to lie to everyone and say. Um, King Leopold, fun fact, was arguably one of the first machines of modern propaganda, of biased information, um, and he tried the best he could to get a lot of newspapers and news outlets sort of in his pocket to make sure that no bad stories were spread about him. So yeah, arguably history's worst monster, signed, sealed, delivered, Miss Funk. Just to really nail home this point about the atrocities that were happening in the Belgian Congo, um, I'm providing you a primary source on the next slide. So this is a photograph taken in 1904 um, by a woman named Alice Seely Harris. Um, she's British. And so Seely Harris made an account of her what she saw in the Congo. Um, you can see what's in this image yourself. I'll read you the caption. He hadn't made his rubber quota for the day, so the Belgian-appointed overseers had cut off his daughter's hand and foot. Her name was Boali. She was five years old. Then they killed her. But they weren't finished. Then they killed his wife, too. And because that didn't seem quite cruel enough, quite strong enough to make their case, they cannibalized both Boali and her mother. And they presented Nisala with the tokens, the leftovers, from the once-living body of his darling child whom he had so loved. Kind of speaks for itself. Okay, larger case study aside, I also want to take you down to South Africa. So South Africa has a very long history of um, racial tension and of tension between Europeans and the native Africans. Um, so we're just going to talk about this one really quickly, but it is pretty important. Um, so South Africa's conquering was a long process by the British who took it from the Dutch. Um, the British and the Boers were clashing over land in what was known as the Boer Wars. And so the Boer Wars went on for about 20 years. It was an extremely bloody conflict. Um, and eventually the British won because, of course, they did. And they forced the Boers off of their native land and into concentration camps. Now, I want to make a really clear division here. I know when you hear the phrase concentration camp, the first thing you think of is the Nazis, which is totally valid. But 
we want to think of Nazi camps more of as death camps, right? So when you think about the line of people walking up to the gas chamber, that's Nazi stuff. Hitler really, unfortunately, horrifically perfected the art of the death camp. These concentration camps were so named because they had a concentration of people. Um, but that doesn't mean they were good at all. No, they weren't just lining up to be executed. But conditions in these camps were as awful as you can imagine. Uh, the camps in South Africa were segregated by race, black and white. Um, the black camps naturally received poorer treatment. Even after the British got in trouble for their conditions of the camp when spotted by others, other nations, um, they only fixed the camps that held the white boers, not the black ones. Not shocking. Um, these concentration camps did turn into work camps. Approximately 15,000 people died in these conditions of death and squalor and sickness. All right, moving right along. Um, if you have noticed, the rest of this PowerPoint is a lot shorter because I'm geeking a little bit less. Uh, so we're moving on to section two and section three of your notes, starting with state expansion in Asia. All right, so this is the quick and dirty version of state expansion in Asia. We're going to spend a lot more time on this in a little bit because I want to talk to you about economic imperialism, but that'll be next week. So imperialism, naturally, is motivated pretty much entirely by economics, and some of the major regions of that started to start to stick out to us in the South. So first we're going to think about India. India was the most important colony of the British. Um, first, it was owned privately. Pieces of it had trading posts owned by the East India Trading Company. Um, but eventually, the British realized that wasn't enough for them because that's always what they do. And therefore, they took over. So they were able to win through military might, but not just through military might of their own. Rather, the British used their resources in that they used native soldiers known as Sepoys. And that's going to cause a lot of problems for them later. But for now, the Sepoys let them take over India, which became the cash cow of the British Empire. On the other hand, we have Dutch Southeast Asia. So in that same sort of area, the Dutch East India Company owned a lot of private land in Southeast Asia. The Dutch East India Company fell apart due to corruption. Shock and awe. But it was taken over by the Dutch government and therefore turned into colonies that could be harvested for their materials and their spices like everywhere else, just this time by the Dutch. Moving right along on our imperialism world tour, we're going to stop off in East Asia and look at China and Japan. I'm only going to go over these super quickly because, again, one we've already talked about and the other I want to look at in depth next week. So for China, everything was about the balance of trade, a.k.a. who benefits more from trading with whom. Uh, China had almost always had a favorable balance of trade in that they had everything that everyone else wanted because they were hundreds of years ahead of Europe. The Europeans needed to find a way to circumvent that. And China started to have some financial troubles due to um, strain politically and strain from natural weather and things like that. The Western powers, instead of helping China, well, they helped in their own way, quote unquote, helped, by which I mean they took advantage of them. So they split China into something called a sphere of influence. And in each sphere of influence, the European nation or the Japanese nation or the Western power who owned that sphere got to have the final say in everything from laws to what kind of trade was coming in and out of that section of China. This is going to become extremely important when we talk about economic imperialism. On the other hand, we have Japan. 
Uh, as you know, Japan became the major colonizing power in East Asia, thanks to the Meiji Restoration. The Meiji Restoration, which gave Japan that rapid industrialization we talked about last unit, gave them sort of this nationalistic desire and fervor, just like everybody else in the Western world, to expand. So Japan started taking colonies that were rich with resources just as fast as they could. Um, and they expanded into Korea, they expanded into China, to modern day Taiwan, and even into southern Asian countries kind of along the lines of the Dutch. So the Japanese become the major power in this region, which you should already know. Last but certainly not least, we're actually going to look at the United States. You guys know that I am not a huge proponent of U.S. history, by which I mean I am a hack and a fraud and don't know that much about it. Um, but this part I know quite a bit about, and it's still pretty important for you to understand as we come into our brand new AP world exam. So the United States had become a major power due to industrialization. And the United States is also a model, quote unquote, for imperial expansion. So moving on to slide 13. Uh, the United States followed a idea known as manifest destiny. You probably have heard before. Manifest destiny basically meant it's the American right to expand all the way into the West. So going from coast to coast, sea to shining sea, sea. Um, it is our right to expand that way, uh, which is this you know, great romantic idea of Americanism, except for the fact that a ton of people lived there, like a lot of them, and we didn't care. I hope you're seeing a theme here. This push for westward expansion led to a lot of different acts made both by the government and by private entities to try and push the Native Americans off of their land. Um, famously, the Indian Removal Act led to what was known as the Trail of Tears in the United States, um, which was the forced migration of Native Americans away from their homelands onto reservations. Um, these reservations and this Trail of Tears, which was very aptly named due to the suffering that the people faced while on said trail, they walked from place to place, um, led to actually inspiring some of the very first concentration camps. Um, there is an argument made by historians that Andrew Jackson, the person who put the Indian Removal Act into place, is the architect of the concentration camp. Um, it's an interesting piece of American history for you there. So that's domestically, domestic expansion. Externally, the United States really wanted to play with the big boys, and the only way to play with the big boys and the Western powers, like the British, was to have an overseas empire. So naturally, the United States wants to get involved in that. Um, so the United States more or less provokes a war with the Spanish uh, called the Spanish-American War, which they win because, of course, they do. Um, and when they win it, they win a ton of territory from the severely weakened Spanish. So, And that includes the Philippines, Guam, Puerto Rico, and Cuba. And we still own a couple of those places. If you didn't know that, um, Guam and Puerto Rico are both still owned by the United States. So the United States was an imperialist power. In fact, we still kind of are. Uh, the video to the side is a fantastic TikTok for your viewing enjoyment, but I'm not going to play it on a podcast because that seems silly, but you should check it out. Okay, so the TLDR, the things that you most need to know, how do we sum up this massive PowerPoint into just a couple of sentences? Pretty easily. So major imperial powers, the British, the French, the Dutch, the American, even the Japanese, all still known as Western due to their modernization, take over everything and anything they can get their greedy little hands on to rob them of all of their resources using whatever methods possible. Which led to the destruction of societies, resource mining, death, and a lot of extremely rich Europeans. It also had massive long-term effects on the places that they conquered, 
effects that we still see today. Um, so sort of the irresponsibility of the Europeans of this time period led to a lot of problems that are still occurring in our world today. Um, imperialism left a major footprint on the world as you know it. That's just about it for our imperialism podcast. Um, I'm going to end for you on a little fun fact, I guess, a current event, if you will. Um, At this moment, you're probably listening to this podcast in your home because you are following the healthy at home orders as put in by our governor. Um, If you've been keeping up with the news about the coronavirus, you might have seen that one of the first medical advances we've had towards maybe finding some kind of a cure um, comes from a disease, a drug for a disease known as malaria. Malaria, as you know, comes from mosquitoes. Malaria is extremely common in Africa. And in fact, malaria is what killed a lot of Europeans during this time period. It was the discovery of quinine that helped Europeans to develop a drug to treat malaria, which eventually led to the conquest of most of Africa in places that people couldn't go before. Quinine is one of the major ingredients that people are thinking could be used to help treat the coronavirus. Um, obviously, this is just thought and conjecture. We don't actually know if it works or not, but it's just a fun fact, a connection to our world today. That about concludes our imperialism podcast for today. Um, next time you hear from me, we will skip over objective 6.3, and we're going to be moving on to 6.4, which is on global economic development and economic imperialism. I know economic history is your favorite thing to learn about. I will do my best to make it as interesting and exciting for you as possible. No matter what you're doing or how you're feeling at this moment, I want you to know I miss you guys very much. I love you guys very much. And I cannot wait to hopefully see some of your smiling faces, at least their video, sometime soon. Have a great day, Miss Funk's AP class. Love you guys very much. See you next time.